Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Companies podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each week, our expert arborists share advice on seasonal tree care, how to make your trees thrive, arborists' favorite trees, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more, because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. I'm joined this week by Chris Fields Johnson. He's a technical advisor for the Davy Institute down in Charlottesville, Virginia. Chris, welcome to the show. How do these trees know it's time to leaf out? Because I'm ready. Yeah, Doug, I think we're all ready. So trees go through a, a very specific process throughout the, the preceding dormant season to get ready to leaf out. So really, it starts in the, the fall with how they know to go dormant. So as the days get shorter, trees are sensitive to the photo period. Uh, as the photo period, you know, the amount of time that the sun is shining declines, uh, some molecular processes are kicked off or the trees start to uh, stop producing chlorophyll and decreasing the amount of chlorophyll in their leaves. Uh, so the leaves begin to change color. And then eventually they'll uh, cut the leaves off at the abscission line where they uh, attach to the, the stems and the leaves begin to, to fall down. So that's kind of the, the first indicator that gets things uh, going into dormancy is that decline in photo period. Over the winter, uh, the trees do something a little bit different. They're actually kind of counting the amount of time uh, that it's below freezing. So it's like freezing degree days or, or cold degree days. So they require a certain amount of time uh, below freezing in order to set off another kind of chain of molecular events that tells them it's going to be okay to break dormancy when things start to warm up. And then finally, as temperatures uh, get above freezing and uh, in a lot of cases above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, that sets off the growing degree day clock. And you start to accumulate a certain number of growing degree days you know, above 50 degrees. And the trees will then begin to break bud and put out new leaves and flowers uh, when they hit a certain number of growing degree days. Uh, so that's it. That's the the process. They begin by kind of counting down the days getting shorter. That tells them to go dormant. Uh, over the course of the winter, they accumulate a certain number of days or hours below freezing. And that tells them, okay, winter has passed, so it's going to be safe to, to come out uh, when things warm up. And then finally, as temperatures rise above about 50 degrees Fahrenheit uh, for long enough, then they say, okay, it's safe to, to put out new leaves and flowers. Now, sometimes they get burned, right? Sometimes they jump the gun and you get like a late frost or a late winter storm and it can give cold damage to those leaves and flowers and they well, have to start over. That's where I wanted to ask you because I was going to say, why does my magnolia, <laughs> those buds swell up real nice and I guess one out of three or four years, there's a there's a late freeze and no magnolia flowers for the old fashioned magnolias, the newer one, you know, the newer ones are bred to, to bloom a little later. That's just, just the way it goes, huh? Yeah. It's just the way it goes. You know, trees have been evolving for millions of years. So they kind of, they play the table, right? They, they gamble, they, they play the statistics. So they're going to try to maximize their growing season, right? They don't want their leaves to get nuked by a, a late frost, uh, and they don't want you know something to come up and get them in the fall before they've gone dormant, that, you know, like a, an early frost in the fall. So they'll kind of pick indicators that give them the longest average growing season without you know wasting their leaves and kind of throwing them out there as cannon fodder. 
Uh, but they're definitely playing the statistics and they're going to push it a little bit to try to grab a longer growing season. And I guess evolutionarily, it's just come to their advantage to to gamble a little bit, maybe come out a little early. So every you know year out of 10 years, you know, one out of 10 years, one out of five years, something like that, maybe they get burned, they lose some of the leaves that have come out a little bit early. And then, you know, if they have you know years of time to recover in between, they have no problem putting out a second set of leaves. It's when that happens multiple years in a row and, and that keeps going on and on that they might get into trouble and start to decline. So up here in Pittsburgh, you know, we're still waiting. You know, if I got the question, hey, when are my when are my trees gonna leaf out? My answer would be just be patient. They'll leaf out when they leaf out. <laughs> it's it's gonna happen. But let's say, for instance, we get worried, you know, we get into that 50 degrees and we don't see the, the tree leafing out. Uh, do we just wait? Uh, I guess it depends on the tree, huh? Yeah, it's going to depend a lot on species. You know, they don't start leafing out immediately when you get days above 50 degrees. But when you start getting, you know, 100 or more growing degree days, you should start to see the, the early uh, leaf outs happening. Uh, some of like the invasive species like uh, multiflora rose and autumn olive, you know, they'll start to put out leaves pretty early. They're a little bit more hardy uh, you know, than others will, will start coming out. But a lot of times we see flowers coming out bef- before the leaves. So that's another uh, thing to look for. It's a little bit of an early warning sign. So around this time of year, you know, you might be seeing forsythia blooming. Um, that's a good indicator. Um Things like quans and cherries, in some cases, might already be uh, blooming, and then pretty soon you'll start seeing like the Bradford pears and other calorie pears blooming. You know the big showy white flowers, and then the leaves come out pretty soon after uh, the full bloom of the the calorie pears and Bradford pears. You'll start to see their leaves coming out. Uh, for other species, you know they'll put out leaves before the flowers. Um, another species you probably are seeing uh, blooming now is red maple the little uh, small red flowers on red maple. And then like the, the silver maples and sugar maples will come you know, shortly after that. And then you'll see the leaves come out after those have gone through their, their blooming cycles. So yeah, look for those early uh, indicators. Um, you know, the main thing to be worried about is if you see an individual tree uh, of a given species where all the other members of that species that you can observe have leafed out and that individual has not. And if it continues to lag for one, two, three weeks or more, uh, that's an indicator that, that one tree is pretty stressed out. It, it might be dead, um, or you know, if it doesn't leaf out at all, right, ever, then that means it's just dead. Uh, but if it just leafs out really late, uh, that can be a sign of stress, and there might be something wrong with that tree. You might want to have it looked at. Well, up here, it's just when you're driving down the freeway and you see the maples and you see those buds starting to swell and change color, that's exciting you know, we're, we're getting close, but you brought up something I wanted to talk to you about autumn olive. And I need your opinion on this because I inherited two autumn olive trees on my property. Now they have the most amazing fragrance. Those little berries are edible, but it's an invasive and, and, and that's concerning to me. And the other thing that's concerning to me, it's my wife's favorite two trees on the property. <laughs> yeah, no, they are uh, an invasive. They tend to take over uh, areas that are disturbed. And you know they don't get very tall, uh, but they're pretty large shrub. 
and they can form a continuous canopy and really restrict the ability of other species to, to move in and uh, you know, grow like a native forest there. Uh, they can invade you know, fields and pastures. You know, if the goal is to have like an open meadow or a, like a pasture or hayfield or something like that. So yeah, so they do present a problem. They are edible. I've actually made wine out of autumn olive berries before. It took you know all day to gather uh, you know three or four gallons of them <laughs> to make wine because they're so small. Uh, but yeah, they are an edible. Of course, the birds love them, and the birds are really the primary vector for them. They eat the berries. the The berry seeds go through their digestive tracts and get scarified and and spread all over the place. So it's it's uh, a plant that's certainly out of the bag. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Uh, you go your particular autumn olive plants uh, in your yard are not a particular problem because this is a plant that's already everywhere. So I would just make an individual decision if those plants are your favorites and they're worthwhile to you. Yeah, th that's okay in that kind of domestic uh, context. Um, somebody else who finds them out in their pasture or in a an area they're trying to reforest with native trees, they might be a big problem for them. But don't feel like your particular plants are, you know, gonna create, you know, any significant difference in the, the grand scheme of things. Uh, they are an amazing plant, though. You know, they fix nitrogen, uh, so they can help to restore soils. You know, originally they were planted for kind of reclamation purposes for restoring soils uh, that were eroding or that weren't able to support uh, other vegetation uh, originally. It, they're extremely hardy, um, so they do have perhaps a use, but yeah, they start to take over certain areas. And so we need to manage them appropriately where they become a problem. Well, Chris, that's exactly what I wanted to hear because I was afraid you were going to say, cut down those autumn olives. They're invasive and you're ruining our environment. So that's good news. It, yeah. I'm not uh, an invasive, anti-invasive plant warrior. I think, yeah, they do create specific problems in specific contexts, but yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that a lot of these plants are here to stay. They're naturalized. We have to find ways to integrate them into the ecosystem and, and manage them. It's like we can't eradicate a lot of these things anymore. Just like we can't eradicate certain diseases and certain insect pests, you know, things like the emerald ash borer, they're here to stay. We can protect individual trees uh, where we can, but we're not ever going to get rid of the emerald ash borer. It's impossible. What? Same is true, same's true for autumn olive. We're never going to get rid of all of them, but where they're specifically a problem, we can manage them and push them back a little bit. Well, you just saved my marriage. That's good news. Okay. <laughs> Great. So, so tell me a little bit about your job. What does that mean? Technical advisor for the Davy Institute. Yeah. So I work with uh, the Davy Institute in the East Atlantic region. So I cover the area roughly from the Western New York city metro area uh, down to Atlanta and uh, out to Charleston, West Virginia. I provide technical support for our various operations in the region, uh, mostly for the residential and commercial tree care, and also for Davy Resource Group. Uh, a lot of what I do is technical support for plant health care, so helping to diagnose plant issues, you know, pest diseases, soil issues, and uh, troubleshoot, uh, come up with management plans. I do a lot of employee education, so putting on educational programs and also field visits doing ride-alongs to client properties and uh, helping to solve problems. Uh, quite a bit of like inspecting pesticide safety issues, like how pesticides are, are stored, how personal protective equipment is used. So helping to educate all of our people about, you know, safe practices with pesticides. Uh, 
do quite a bit of research as well, you know, whether it's uh, reviewing literature and extension publications to get good information to our field people, uh, or just original research. You have always have quite a few little experiments going on, testing different soil amendments and uh, water practices and all kinds of different things. And what kind of path do you take for that job? How did, how did you find your way to it? Well, primarily, I have a, a doctorate in soil science from Virginia Tech. So, you know, getting the graduate degree was really important to be qualified for this job. Uh, but on the work side, you know, when I was young, I worked in kind of the adventure and rock climbing field, you know, teaching kids rock climbing and running adult workshops and working at a climbing gym. Uh, so I did that through some of my college years. Uh, on the side, I uh, did uh, tree work, you know, taking down trees for people and pruning, that kind of thing. That, that helped me kind of pay for college and get through. Um, and then when I was in graduate school, I was employed by the university as a research assistant. So helping with various projects, including my own thesis and dissertation work, but also other graduate student and professors, you know, work projects. Uh, so that's a pretty involved job. But then uh, when I initially got out of graduate school, I worked for uh, another tree company as a plant healthcare technician. So I would be out in the field with a rig, uh, you know, providing treatments for you know, any problems that I saw. And then during the winter, when there wasn't as much plant healthcare work, I would work on the tree crew. So, you know, initially just working as a grounds person, uh, dragging brush, chipping it up and sharpening chainsaws and supporting all the climbers, and then eventually doing more climbing you know, climbing up in trees, either with a rope or accessing trees with a, a bucket truck uh, for doing trimming and removals and that kind of thing. Uh, and then uh, eventually there was an opening to be a technical advisor on the East Coast for Davey. So I switched companies and and took a different job where I was able to combine all the practical experience I had with the educational background. So I find myself in a pretty good position now to to use a lot of my experience in education. Yeah, that's a, a quite a resume, you know, you know all the stuff on the ground. You've been up in the trees. And then you've got, you know, of course, this great science background, too, uh, to, to, to use. That's pretty cool. It's fun to be able to pull all those threads of my life together and, and have a job that's uh, fairly dynamic and where I can help people every day, both you know, our employees and clients, you know, solving problems. It, it's really fun because I'm always solving a new issue or problem every day. It's always something new. Uh, visiting some new place I've never been before and solving new problems. It's a lot of fun. So down where you're at uh, in Virginia, has everything started to leaf out? Uh, not everything. Uh, we're kind of in the 100 to 200 growing degree day phase now. So the forsythia is blooming. The calorie pears are just starting to bud out. Uh, the Kwanzaa cherries are blooming. And not seeing a whole lot of leaves coming out yet, except on things like the autumn olive and multiflora rose and some of the really the early leaf out stuff. Uh, but yeah, in the next few weeks, a lot of stuff is going to start to to leaf out as those you know, flowers come into full bloom and kind of fade away. Uh, then the leaves really start to come on. And that'll continue through about uh, in Virginia. Usually everything's done leafing out and all the spring blooms and stuff are out around May 10th or so. Uh, it, it's all kind of finished and we get more into a, a summer state of affairs. So yeah, we have about two months of a, a rollout of new leaves coming out almost on a day-to-day -day basis between now and, and early May. 
you have a different winter than we have up here in Pittsburgh, but do you have the same feeling that, that someone that lives in, in a little further north has when we come out of that winter? Uh, because we can't wait. You know, we can't wait. You know, we're, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching those Forsythia. We're behind you probably three weeks, and I'm seeing those buds swell, but, you know, like you said, that's the first indication those those yellow flowers explode. Do you have the same feeling of coming out of winter? Yeah, winter in Virginia is different. You know, we only had one fairly major snow event uh, this year. It was a pretty nasty snow event. So a lot of Virginia pines and red cedars got got crushed. And so a lot of storm damage and stuff happened from that one event. And then a couple kind of icy, sleety storms after that. But it was really just that one month period in January where we had wintry conditions. And since then, it's been, you know, we've had re- routinely had days, you know, above 50 or 60 degrees and, you know, gets below freezing at night. Um, but other than that, it's, it's fairly mild. So, yeah, the winters in Virginia are, are fairly mild. Uh, we don't really dread them. Um, it happens often enough in Virginia that we do have like the, the plows and the salt trucks and stuff available to actually clean up the roads. So we don't have like total bedlam and breakdown of society uh, like when it, it snows, like you might have in the deep south. Um, so here we're, we're fairly well prepared for the winter events, but they don't drag on. So yeah, I don't really get a, a huge sense of relief uh, around this time of year because it really hasn't been that bad to begin with. Um, I enjoy the snow. Sometimes I wish it snowed more. Um, with climate change and everything, I'm probably gonna have to move north if I uh, <laughs> want to enjoy more snow because we seem to get, get less and less of it down here over time. Um, you know, you know, here in the South, we dread the the summer more. Just the relentless hundred degree days and the high humidity uh, that can really drag on, and so we really get a sense of relief in the fall when things start to cool off and the weather's nice and people want to be outside more. In the middle of summer, it, it can be really really difficult to be outside uh, for days on end working. Well, I'll guarantee you anyone that lives up here is not wishing for more snow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, before I let you go, I was wondering if you had a couple trees that you think are pretty cool that, that might not get planted as much as you think they should. Something that you really like. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, there are some species that I feel like do really well uh, that could be utilized more. Uh, so one uh, would be the the Kusa dogwood. It's a, a small snatcher tree, it has a long bloom period, uh, really intricate, interesting bark. So it has a lot of winter appeal as well. And it doesn't have nearly the same number of problems as the the flowering dogwoods do, which get you know anthracnose and borers and all kinds of issues. Uh, I get very few calls and issues with Kusa dogwood coming up. So that, that's a, a good one to, to consider if you want a small stature ornamental flowering tree uh, in your yard or on your property. Uh, another one that I find pretty interesting and hardy is the uh, the sawtooth oak. Uh, it's a prolific uh, acorn producer for wildlife, uh, has very few of the other oak issues that we're seeing, you know, whether it's an oak wild oak decline, uh, you know, things of that nature. Uh, yeah, I think sawtooth oak is a, an interesting one that has a lot of possibilities. Uh, if you want more of a, a native oak tree that does really well, the swamp white oaks are resistant to a lot of the issues that we're seeing out there. And that is one that's native to North America. Sawtooth oak is, is native to China. And of course, the Kusa dogwood is native to Korea. That's a, the other name for that is the, the Korean dogwood. Uh, you know, so those are a, a few that, that seem to do real well. Um, my favorite trees on the deciduous side, 
I really like uh, American Beach. Uh, of course, that's got several issues now, the beach bark disease and the beach bark scale, and now the beach leaf disease as well. Uh, so that's uh, a native tree that's uh, very much under threat from all sides. Uh, on the conifer side, I love bald cypress, and I think there's a lot of potential to use those more in, in urban contexts. Of course, that's um, a deciduous conifer, which is, so it's very unique. Uh, it's kind of like um, Dawn Redwood in, in that respect. Dawn, with Dawn Redwood is another one that I really like. And um, both of those really do well in urban environments. They can deal with compacted soil. Uh, they you know, shed their leaves in the winter, so they allow the, the sunshine in to give you a little bit of um, you know, solar gain for your, your home or your cars or, or whatever. But then they provide shade in the summer when you need it. And they just seem to be really hardy with kind of compacted soils and poor conditions. Uh, I think either one of those is a, a cool choice. Well, that's a great list. And I sure appreciate all that great information. Thanks very much for sharing your stories. And thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot, Doug. Boy, that was great information, wasn't it? Next week, we're going to learn all about the best small trees for the landscape and even trees for planting in containers, too. Tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I'm your host, Doug Oster. I'd love if you would subscribe to the podcast. We are having a bunch of fun, aren't we? And as always, we'd like to remind you on the Talking Trees podcast, trees are the answer.